You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, that's what I'm talking about. A little heads up, as you can see, we're having a little bit of trouble with this projector. Uh, So use those hardback Bibles in your pews, or rather they're paperback. I was corrected last week. Uh, Hard copy. That's the word that I've been trying to use for two weeks. Yes, they're not electronic. It's a hard copy. My brain doesn't work. Uh, yeah, so we're gonna be we're gonna be all over uh, all over the place in this passage that we're in. Uh, but anyway, if you're new here, I see a few people visiting. My name is David Dowdy. I am the teaching pastor here at Revolution Church, and we're really glad uh, that you visited with us this evening. Uh, and just so you know, what we're doing is this evening we're continuing our study of First John. Uh, the name of this series is Simple Truths. Uh, the reason why we call it that is because many of the things John writes in this letter is stuff that you've heard all over the place, especially if you grew up in church or if you've been a Christian any uh, significant amount of time. Uh, But though we've heard these things before, these are things we always need reminded of. So again, as I say at the beginning of all of the sermons in this series, uh, take this stuff to heart because this letter, 1 John, is foundational, okay? This is core stuff of the faith. So this evening, we are going to be in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. Yeah. This is like the biggest chunk that we've done at one time. I am pumped for this. We're going to blast through chapter 3 at this rate. Uh, but yeah, so 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. And again, you're going to need a hard copy because I don't trust this thing. Um, but again, th- so throughout this letter, uh, if you've been here with us or you've read 1 John a few times, throughout this letter, John gives us a few tests to indicate whether or not someone is a true believer. He gives us a series of tests. He gives us a doctrinal tests. Uh, a moral test, um, a test of love. He gives us a handful of tests scattered throughout this book. Um, and these tests should be how we assess the claim to faith in ourselves and in the people around us. Right? These tests are how we can know whether or not someone's saved, how we can know whether or not someone truly has faith in Jesus. But, and I, I try to remind you guys of this often, John does not write this letter so that we would doubt if we're saved. That's not the purpose of John's letter. He writes so that we can have assurance as we see ourselves passing these tests, as we we see um, what John's really getting at, that we would have assurance. Chapter 5, he says, I write these things so you can know that you have eternal life. All right, so like I said a minute ago, we've seen John give us three or four tests already in this letter, and what John does, and it's kind of maddening, I'm going to be honest, is he cycles through them again. Right? Like, if you ever read, like, much Paul, Paul is super linear. Like, once he's said it once, like, he may address it again, but it's in, like, a different context a few chapters later. Not John. Right? John writes in circles. He'll say one thing, and then three verses later, he'll find a new way to say the same thing again. Um, So, again, he goes over the same thing multiple times throughout this letter, and the series of tests are starting again this evening. Um, And that means something to to consider. Uh, Whenever the Bible repeats itself, pay attention. All right? Always pay attention to the Scripture regardless uh, but something, uh, a, f- a funny way of looking at it is uh, that the Holy Spirit did not inspire John to waste ink, right? He, re- he wrote this stuff twice. He went through these tests multiple times in the letter for a reason, right? So we should really pay attention whenever the Bible repeats itself. God does not waste his time. Uh, but the test that we're going to be looking at again this evening is what some scholars call the moral test or the test of obedience. And as you can guess, it has to do with the obedience to the law of God. It has to do with growing in holiness. Because as far as John is concerned, 
and the rest of the testimony of Scripture is concerned, as we're going to see this evening, where John, where as far as John is concerned, where there is no holiness and no obedience to God, there is no genuine faith and there is no genuine repentance. Where there is no holiness and where there is no obedience, there is no genuine repentance, there is no genuine faith in Christ. That's because faith produces good works. Right? I can't stress this enough. Good works don't merit salvation, but they are a fruit of salvation. Right? Just like we had you guys reading that confession uh, earlier, we did that on purpose. Right? That we're justified completely by what Christ has done. We're saved completely by the work of Christ, not our own works. We're saved by the fact that Christ took the penalty for the sins that you and I have committed on the cross, right? and that Christ lived a perfect life of obedience in our place, and that His work on our behalf has been imputed or put over us through faith in Christ. The confession, I loved it. Uh, I, I caught it uh, while you we were reading it. It's not even our faith that justifies. Right? It said it's no obedience to the gospel that justifies, not even faith in the gospel that justifies, but it is Christ himself that saves sinners. It is the work of Christ on its own that saves, not even your faith. It's all what Christ has done. Faith is merely how we have received the work of Christ on our behalf. Right? So I just want to get that really clear because, again, this whole sermon's about obedience but you're not saved by your works. You're saved by trusting Christ's work. But again, I also cannot stress enough that genuine faith in Christ results in genuine changes in our behavior. It results in genuine change in our life. And that's what John is going to get at in our text this evening. So a little bit more before we actually get into the text itself. Some context, set the stage, because uh, we just got done with three verses where John kind of goes off his main point for a minute. Uh, but the context that we're in this evening, you guys will remember... You've heard me say this a bunch. There were heretics in the church in Asia Minor, right? What we now know as Turkey. There were a bunch of heretics in the church there, and they had caused schisms. They were causing all kinds of chaos, teaching false doctrine uh, among the churches in Asia Minor, and that's what prompts John to write this letter. Uh, so among other things, the heretics in John's day were teaching that sin doesn't matter, right? They were teaching that the law of God is not binding, Essentially, they were teaching that you can live however you want to and still know God and still be at peace with God. That sin is inconsequential. That's because these heretics were of a certain school of thought that they believed that the body didn't matter. That the material world was inherently wicked. So no matter what you did with your body, right, how you lived doesn't matter because they, they taught that everything was about the spirit of a man. Right? Everything was spiritual. Uh, and that the spirit could remain pure while the life was absolute gutter trash. Right? <laughs> That's what they were teaching, essentially. Spirit can remain pure while your life is horrible. And John's writing to combat that. Right? And, and honestly, just to put this into our context then, it's not really that hard, is it? Because <laughs> the day that we live in is very similar to what John was dealing with in his time. Right? Many churches and pastors, and I use those words very loosely... Many churches and pastors teach that sin isn't really sin, right? That God actually loves the things that his word says he hates. Furthermore, they teach that sin doesn't really matter, that God doesn't really care what you do with your life as long as you are nice, right? I was listening to Vadi Bauckham. He said there are, there's an 11th commandment in the modern church, and that's be nice, and you can disobey the first ten as long as you obey the eleventh, right? And that's seriously how a lot of people tend to view the law of God. Just be really nice. That's trash. 
right? These falsely called churches endorse sin. And again, these are pretty easy things to see. Um, and we don't have much of this problem around here, but there are a lot of false churches that endorse homosexuality. They ordain uh, openly homosexual pastors, openly transgender pastors. Uh, they endorse intoxication. They endorse fornication. They endorse abortion. On and on and on, just endorsing all kinds of sins, saying that it's okay, saying that repentance is not necessary, right? In a lot of these churches, sin is never really mentioned. And furthermore, holiness is a foreign word to most of their pastors in their sermons. The wrath of God is never talked about, and the gospel of God is never preached. And again, this hasn't hit much in our area yet, but it's coming because Scioto County is about 20 years behind everyone. So give us a little bit. It's going to hit here too. Uh, but in our area, we do see something, uh, and you guys have seen this before. You guys have seen this with your coworkers. You guys probably know people in your families like this. Um, a similar teaching to that. It's not quite as blunt, uh, but you've heard this one. Hey, man, you prayed the prayer. Eh? Yeah, like you prayed the prayer. You said the sinner's prayer. You asked Jesus into your heart, and you were baptized. It really doesn't matter how you live now because we believe in eternal security, Right? So you can just live how you want, and you said the magic words, so you're definitely going to heaven. Anyone ever heard that one? Yeah. Uh, just for total uh, clarity here, we do believe in eternal security here at Revolution, but we prefer to call it the perseverance of the saints. Because if God converts someone, they will persevere in faith and godliness and repentance until they die. Right? It's not that they prayed the prayer, and now they're good to go. Right? That's not, that's not what we believe. But that's a lot of stuff around here. But anyway, John is seeking to correct this heresy that teaches that you can live however you please and still be a Christian. Right? That you can live however you please and still be saved when you die. John is correcting a heresy. Its formal name is called antinomianism. It's the opposite of legalism. Legalism says you can be saved by how good you are. Antinomianism says since you're saved by the work of Christ, it doesn't matter how you live and you can do whatever you want and be just a moral monster. Right? And that's what John is writing against. John is, in this passage, going to implore the people of God to be holy and to not be deceived by false teachers, and also to show how a life with no care for God's law is inconsistent with knowing God. It's inconsistent with true faith in Jesus. So I know that was a long introduction. This sermon's going to be a little bit longer than we're probably used to, but you'll be all right. All right 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. God, please help us to take this really heavy passage to heart and not cheapen your grace to us in Christ, but to let this convict us, let, it, let this hit us and call us to holiness. God, please help me as I preach this. Holy Spirit, please do a work of sovereign grace and point us to Jesus. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's be clear on something before we go any further. 
right? <laughs> if you're like me, I remember the first time as a Christian I read First John. <laughs> I was like, everything was kind of cool, and then we got to chapter 3, and I called my pastor because I was like, dude, I don't think I'm saved anymore. <laughs> I, like, I guess this is bad news bears. But I just want to be clear on something before we go any further. John is not teaching sinless perfectionism here. Right? Some people will take this passage and they will twist it and they will try to teach you that John is telling you that a Christian cannot sin anymore. Right? Anyone who makes a practice of sinning doesn't know Christ. Right? They can't abide in Christ. Anyone who keeps on sinning is of the devil. Right? So Christians can't sin. That's really stupid if you've read the whole book of 1 John. That's not what John's getting at here. Right? So let's just go back to chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, real quick. 1 John 1, 8 and 10 and chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Ten, if we say we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. Right? So right there, verses 8 and 10, he says, if you have no sin, if you say you have no sin, he's talking to Christians, if anyone says they have no sin, then you deceive yourself. You're just lying to yourself, right? And God's truth is not in you. You're not a Christian if you claim that you don't ever sin. Verse 10, if you say that you have never sinned, then you make God a liar because God says the whole world stands under his righteous wrath and condemnation for sin, right? So everyone has sinned. In verse 8, he says, even Christians cannot say that we do not sin. And furthermore, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's his purpose. I don't want you to sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Right? So there he says, I don't want you to sin, but you're gonna. Right? It's not what I want you to do, but it's gonna happen. And I want you all to know that when that happens, you have an advocate before God, because Christ has taken your penalty in your place. He has been your propitiation. He has reconciled you to God. And he's saying that to people who are already saved. He's telling that to people who are already Christians, right? So clearly, chapters 1 and 2 show us that John clearly believes that it is possible for genuine believers to commit acts of sin. We can commit acts of sin and that we can be forgiven for them, right? But in this passage, in this context in chapter 3, John is talking about something entirely different from individual acts of sin, right? In chapter 1, he's dealing with a heresy that says sin doesn't exist, In chapter 3, he's dealing with a heresy that says you can sin all you want and that it doesn't really matter. So you see different contexts mean that John's talking about different things. So I think if we're going to understand this passage, we have to understand verse 4. Obviously, it's the first one in this passage, but it's foundational to understanding the rest of the text. If we don't get this, we're going to misunderstand everything. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So John is defining sin in this passage for us. He says anyone who makes a practice of sinning. What's interesting about this is the Greek phrase that he uses here, which I can't pronounce. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, neither can you, so don't look at me like that. Um, The Greek phrase uh, that he uses is in the present tense. Anyone who makes a practice of sinning. It indicates an ongoing action, and I think the ESV has done a really good job translating that. Anyone who makes a practice of sinning, indicating an ongoing, habitual, unrepentant lifestyle of sin is what John's getting at here. It's it's where you have this attitude that says, this is just what I do. I just commit this sin. This is just how I live. This is not an instance of sin, but a practice of sinning. 
right? Iniquities can be anything, legit any sin. John is not putting a, a stopper on anything from the smallest to the greatest sin. He said anyone who makes a habit of sinning, anyone who habitually, unrepentantly sins, makes a practice of it. He says they commit lawlessness. Now that word lawlessness, again, this is an important one, does not mean to break the law. Right? It seems kind of weird, doesn't it? That's just how we translate it into English. The Greek word translated here into lawlessness is used throughout the Bible in connection with false prophets and completely wicked people who care nothing about the law of God and oppose him. Right? Like you can do like a word study on it. Every time that the word we translate into lawlessness is used, it is with someone who is opposed to God and is a false prophet. Right? Again, so lawlessness means to be in total opposition to God. She says, anyone who makes a practice of sinning is in total opposition to God. This is a lawless attitude toward God. It's one of open hostility, open rebellion, caring nothing at all for God's law or holiness. It's a refusal to obey God living again in opposition to him. So what John is saying in verse 4 is that everyone, please hear me on this. There is no exception for anyone in this congregation. Everyone without exception who lives in habitual, unrepentant sin is in open rebellion and opposition to God. Right? And he says this is because sin is lawlessness. That the essence of sin is lawlessness. And that's because to sin is to reject the law of God. Obviously, we've, we've, we've talked about this before. To sin is to reject God's law, which is to reject the divine authority, which is to reject God himself. So all those who live in habitual sin live a life of rejecting God. They don't know him in a saving way, and they prove their hatred of him by their lives. So is it really any wonder, then, why God punishes unrepentant sinners in hell? Is it any wonder? They were lawless. They were opposed to his reign in every way. Of course, God punishes people like that in hell. It only makes sense. They've committed cosmic treason against him. They've opposed him and rebelled against him. So there's a quick note here. Do you really think of your sin this way? Now, I had to ask myself this question. Do we really think of our own sin this way, that our sin is lawlessness? And I'm not saying that all who commit sins are lawless individuals, because that's not what John is saying. But I am saying that every act of sin is lawlessness. Every act of sin is a rejection of God. It is opposition to Him. Do you think about your sin that way? That's just something to consider when you find yourself tempted to sin. So again, John isn't teaching perfectionism, but he is saying that Christians cannot live a life in which sin dominates. That a Christian cannot live a life with no care for God's law where they are constantly given over to their sin. He said it's not going down that way if you're a believer. John then goes on to show us how a life of unrepentant habitual sin is completely inconsistent with the person and work of Jesus. He does this in verses 5 and 8. He says, you know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Right? In the second half of verse 8, he says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Right? So again, he's showing us how inconsistent a lifestyle of sin is with who Christ is and what he came to do. In those two verses, he says the whole reason Jesus Christ came into the world, the whole reason he appeared, that God took on flesh, was to take away sin and to destroy Satan's work. Right, John 1.29, one of the most famous verses in the New Testament. John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's his mission. 
Christ came to reconcile sinners to God. He came to take our sins from us, to to redeem us from the power of sin over our lives, and to set us free from the penalty due to us for our sin. This is a beautiful way of looking at the work of Christ. Christ came to end the attitude of lawlessness in His people. That's what He came to do. He came to make us into the children of God, those of us who were enemies, those of us who were the wicked, lawless ones. He came to remove that lawlessness from us. And Christ accomplished this work by His life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. He accomplished this work by the gospel. Right? 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself, Christ Himself, bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. He says Christ came and took our sins on Himself so that we might die to sin. He came to take our sins away. So again, there's a, there's a sense there where it's not just about freeing us from the penalty, but to take them, that we might die to sin. And John says Christ destroyed Satan's work when he came. Right Now Satan's work is to lead people into sin. Right? We can sin without him for certain, but Satan's work is to keep us bound in our rebellion, to keep us bound in our sin, essentially to keep us slaves to sin. But Romans 6, 20-23 tells us that Christ freed us from sin by his sacrifice. Romans 6, 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there, Paul tells us Jesus came so that we could have sanctification, freedom from our sins, and eternal life. That's what Christ came to do. And please hear me on this. This is, this is, this is what ties the bow on this. The testimony of Scripture is that Jesus actually accomplished what He came to do. Right? Matthew one twenty one: She will bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. The prophecies of God are absolutely infallible. He will save His people. John 19.30, Christ is on the cross here. When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. It is finished. It is done. I have come to do what I said I had come to do. I had come to redeem my people, set them free from the power of Satan, and take their sins from them. Colossians 1, 21-22, Paul writes, And you, who, were once, or who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Christ has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. He said, Christ has now reconciled you. Again, this is all done. He was actually successful. Christ did not try to set us free from the works of the devil. He did not try to destroy Satan's work. He did not try to take our sins away. He actually did it. So, since Christ was successful, how then can someone know God in Christ and still continue in lawlessness? I'll answer that one for you. You can't. That's what John is getting at here. He was successful, therefore you cannot continue in lawlessness because he came to take it away. And since Jesus came to take away sin and destroy it, let me put this before you, he hates it. 
Right? Often we only think of God the Father as being the person in the Godhead who hates sin. But Jesus came to take it away and destroy it. That means Jesus hates sin. He came to take it. If he liked it, he would have let it stay. So clearly our sinful behavior matters to the Lord Jesus. Right? Here's a piece of quick application for this. I found this in a commentary, Matthew Henry's commentary on the whole Bible. Go out and buy it. It's real good. Matthew Henry said this, Let us not serve or indulge in what the Son of God came to destroy. It's something to think about. If this is what Christ came to do, then let us not serve sin. Let us not indulge in what Jesus Christ came to take away and kill. Because it is inconsistent to live in the sin that Christ came to redeem us from. It doesn't make any sense. It is actually so inconsistent to live a lawless life and claim to be a Christian that John says this in verses 6 and 8. He says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. In verse 8 he says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So John says it is impossible to abide in Christ and unrepentantly live in sin. He's showing us the inconsistencies here. He said it's impossible to do so. It is impossible for you to be abiding in Christ and also be at peace with your sin. And remember, we talked about it a few weeks ago. Abide means to live in, to trust in, to look to, to follow it with your life, to love and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to abide in Him. John said it is an absolute impossibility to live lawlessly and do these and be in Christ in this way. To be united with Christ by faith and abide in Him, it is an absolute impossibility to live a sinful lifestyle and do so. These two things are mutually exclusive. They are incompatible with one another. John actually says, and we read it in verse 8, that if you're at peace with the sin in your life, that you are of the devil. Like, John's not playing That is strong words. And he says that because if you're in a lifestyle of unrepentant sin, you're an imitator of Satan, not of Christ. And it's very evident that you're of the devil because you're behaving like and abiding in the devil, not the Lord Jesus. He says people who live this way don't know him. They don't know Christ. They have neither seen nor known him. They have not seen him with the eye of faith. They have not known him experientially. They may know about Jesus. They may know some facts about him from the Bible, but they have no experiential knowledge of him. Because John, as a disciple of Christ, knows that to know Christ is to love him. And to love Christ is to be transformed by him into someone who desires to be like him. And as we read in chapter 2, verse 1, Christ is the righteous one, the pure sinless one. So to know him is to want to be like that. So he says, yeah, if you live in sin, you don't know him. And then the final verse of our text, verse 9, John explains why the Christian cannot live a lifestyle of sin. He actually gives us the why here, and I appreciate this out of John. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So the first thing he says is, 
you can't, keep, you can't make a practice of sinning if you're a Christian because God's seed abides in you. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Those born of God have the Spirit indwelling in them. All right? Actually, before you came to acknowledge Christ as Savior and Lord, you had the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, and He was actually the cause of why you came to faith in the Lord Jesus. He gave you the new birth. Right? That's why he says no one born of God makes a practice of sinning because the Holy Spirit is already dwelling in that person. God's seed abides in them. Now again, don't pass over that. John says that is why that a Christian cannot live in unrepentant sin because the Holy Spirit abides in him. Simply put, the Holy Spirit won't allow the believer to continue in sin. This is a really interesting thought. John doesn't say that the believer won't sin because they're going to try like way harder and white-knuckle themselves and be able just to nail obedience. He says, no, <laughs> the Holy Spirit of God won't let you do it. He'll let you sin, but He won't let you stay there. Right? He won't let you unrepentantly sin. I take a lot of comfort in this as a Christian, to be totally honest. The Holy Spirit will not leave me in my state of sin. But again... The Christian cannot live in unrepentant sin because the Spirit won't allow us to do so. He will convict us. Right? He will throw guilt on us because we're actually guilty. We won't just feel guilty. We are guilty. And He'll let us feel the weight of that. He'll convict us of sin. It's one of the, one of the works of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin. He will bring us to repentance. He'll, he will point us towards Christ and away from our sin. He will remind us of the sweetness of forgiveness in the gospel of Jesus. He will not allow us to be at peace with our sin. Right? I heard a preacher say this a long time ago, uh, and I found this to be true. Nothing is more miserable than a Christian who has sinned. You ever talk to a Christian that just committed a grievous sin? They hate themselves, don't they? You guys know what I'm talking about. You did something real bad. Right? I mean, all, again, all sin is equally damning, but some sin is more grievous than others. I think the Bible would teach us that. Where you just absolutely ate it as a Christian, and you hate yourself for it. You're a living misery, are you not? You hate the action. Right? If you understand the gospel, you don't hate the action because you think that this action is now going to send you to hell, but you hate this action because you've offended God, the God who chose you and has loved you and sent Christ to die for you. You know that you've just been a disobedient son or daughter. You feel the weight of that? That is God's work in you. If you're a Christian, that is God's grace to His people that He would allow us to feel that way, that we might repent. Because I'll tell you this, there's still enough corruption remaining in us that we would stay in that sin if God did not allow us to repent and did not convict us of our sin. I thank Him for that, and you should too if you're a Christian. But again, the, the work of the Holy Spirit is to make us more like Christ. Right? We talked about this last week, Romans 8, 29. Right? Christ, was, Christ came that he might become the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. Right? And the work of the Holy Spirit is to conform us to the image of Christ, who is the visible image of the invisible God. The work of the Spirit is to make us more like Christ through faith and repentance. And if you know anything uh, about the Trinity, you know that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is God. And God doesn't ever fail to do anything. He says, I'm going to do it, and then he does it. Right? He's not like us, where he says, I'm going to try. He says, no, I'm going to do it. So the role of the Holy Spirit in our life is to make us more like Christ. He will do it. So if someone is at peace 
with the sin in their life, they prove that the Holy Spirit is not in them. They prove that they have not been born again. They show that they are still dead in their sins, a slave to sin, and under the righteous wrath of God for their lawlessness. This is serious. John speaks in absolute terms. He does not leave us with middle ground. There is no way around this. This is just how it is. So to sum this passage up before we go into application, we have seen that a lifestyle of habitual, unrepentant sin is incompatible with a claim to know the Christ who came to take away sin. It's incompatible with a claim to abide in the sinless Christ. And it is incompatible with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that all believers have. Therefore, those who live a lawless life are not of God and are still under His wrath, regardless of what they may claim. And that's what John is teaching us here. So, what do we do with this text? If you notice, there's one verse I haven't touched on yet. It's verse 7. Verse 7 tells us, Little children, let no one deceive you. That's the command of this text. Let no one deceive you. Be not deceived. I think there are a few different ways that we can apply this warning. right? Because it's both a warning and a command. Like, hey, here's the warning. There are going to be people try to deceive you. And also a command, don't let yourself be deceived. i got three things. One, do not be deceived by false teachers. All right, this is the one in John's immediate context. All right, that, that's specifically what John has in mind here. Do not be deceived by false teachers. There were false teachers all over the place in Asia Minor teaching this antinomianism garbage that you can live how you want and still be a Christian. John is saying, don't be deceived by them. And still today, more rampant, I would argue, are people who would try to convince you that holiness and obedience to God do not matter. They don't talk about sin. They don't talk about holiness. They don't talk about the necessity to repent and trust in Christ. They don't talk about the fact that faith in Jesus Christ changes us into people who obey God. There are people who would try to convince you that God loves what He says He hates. That's sin. Regardless of what sin it is. So let me, let me lay this before you. Please hear me on this because I know for a lot of you this is not your home church and you're going to go somewhere else. Uh, maybe you're visiting or maybe you're going to go back home to your church, uh, your, your church family back wherever you're from because I know we've got a lot of college students. Please hear me on this. If anyone claims to be a pastor or claims to be a teacher of any kind, small group leader, anyone who says that they can teach you anything about God or anything about His Word, anyone who says that they are in any kind of spiritual authority to disciple or do anything, anyone who would then encourage you to violate the commands of God, run from them. Run from them. Rebuke them and take off. Have nothing to do with them. Anyone who would seek to soften the Word of God. Anyone who would try to say, well, actually what John meant here, or actually what Paul meant here was not really that this is sin, but he had this. No, what does the text say? 
What does the Word of God say? Anyone who would try to soften the commands of Scripture is not of God. Anyone who would ignore the commands of God is not of God. Anyone who would teach you that sin is not sin is not of God. They're a false teacher. They're heretics. Please hear me on this. I'm not always with you guys, but I do care about all of you. If it happens in this church, leave. Actually, our members, you can vote me out. Leave. If it happens back home, address it with your leaders. And if they won't, then leave. Find a church that preaches the word and calls people to faith and repentance and holiness. Please hear me on this. Please be on guard against what sounds good. Be on guard against, quote, what sounds loving. Be on guard against, it. look, if someone agrees with the culture more than they agree with the Bible, stay away from them because they're a false teacher more likely than not. If the culture likes what they have to say more than Christians like what they have to say, probably stay away from them. Be on guard against what sounds good and stick with what God's word declares to you about faith and godliness. Two, do not be deceived by false converts. Now, this one might sound kind of strange because I'm telling you to get in other people's business. Right? We don't like that in the West. We don't like that in the American church. There are people, and again, you guys know these people. They're in your families. You work with them. There might be some in this church. I don't know. You guys, again, you guys are around these kinds of people who claim to know Christ. They claim to be a Christian. They claim to have been born again. They claim that they love Jesus, but they live in open rebellion to the commands of God in Scripture. Live in blatant sin. And they claim that they know Jesus. This passage tells us point blank that they are still in their sins. That they are of the devil. And that they're headed for hell. Do not be deceived by them. No matter how much you might love them or how much you might wish that they were actually Christians or how much you would like to put this passage away, you can't. It's there. It's staring us in the face. Do not be deceived by a false convert who would tell you they love Christ when their life says they hate Him. And I'm not saying this so that you can point the finger at the false convert and say you're a chump. Right? But I'm saying this because these people are lost. Please hear me on this. False converts are not converts. False converts are headed for hell. They need to be evangelized. Right? They need confronted with the truth of their sin, of the holiness of God, His righteous wrath against sin and sinners, and the necessity of repentance and faith in Christ. These false converts need confronted with the gospel. So I would beg you, do not let a false convert or a false believer get away with telling you that they're saved. Take them to texts like this and challenge their claim. Tell them, hey man, your life is not matching your mouth right now. And you're not doing this so you can point sin out in other people. You're doing this that they might turn to Christ and be saved because they're lost. Do not be deceived by false converts. And then lastly, this one's going to hurt. Maybe. Do not be deceived by yourself. Don't be deceived by yourself. Please hear me on this. I do not know all of you. Sorry, I'm having trouble with the connection. <laughs> I say serious. And there she is. <laughs> Have I lost the connection, guys? 
if I just completely went off left field and you're not listening to me anymore, let's put this device of Satan where it belongs. Um, <laughs> all right, but seriously, please, please hear me on this. So again, I, that, that was funny, but let's focus with me on this. No, because I don't know all of you in here. I do not know your spiritual state before God. I don't know if you're lost. I don't know if you've actually come to faith in Christ. I know the vast majority of you would claim to be a Christian. And I know quite a few of you. But ultimately, I don't know your heart because God only knows the hearts of men. Do not deceive yourself. Please. Please hear me on this. Do some soul searching on this if there's any question whatsoever. Many people assume that they're Christians. And they assume that they're Christians because they grew up in church. They assume that they're Christians because they have been baptized. Because they had an emotional experience and they walked down an aisle and they cried and the music was beautiful and they asked Jesus to come into their hearts. They think that they're Christians. Or some people think they're Christians because they know theology so well. And they can quote scripture verbatim at the drop of a hat. And they can take you to the highest points of the most complicated doctrines. And they think that's what makes them Christians. Or there are people who intellectually assent to Christianity as the true religion. And they think that that makes them Christians. But John says here that truly having faith in Christ has moral implications on our lives. John tells us that if there is no holiness and no obedience and no repentance, then there is no salvation. That that person is self-deceived. So in John's mind, where there is no holiness, there is no Holy Spirit of God. And where the Holy Spirit is not, there has been no new birth. And where there is no new birth, there has been no saving faith in Christ. And where there is no saving faith in Christ, there is no salvation. So to shorten that link, John says, where there is no holiness, there is no salvation. So if you've come to realize that this is you, that you live in a lifestyle of sin, that you are a lawless individual, that you are a hypocrite claiming to be a Christian whenever you live a life contrary to the law of God, not caring an ounce about repenting or following Christ or hating your sin or mourning your lawlessness, if you realize that that's you, I want to say two things. You're going to go to hell if you die. Period. Unrepentant sinners go to hell. Those who have not been born again go to hell. Take that. But also this, there is hope for you if you're still alive. Throw yourself on the mercy of God in Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ by faith, believing that He has satisfied God's wrath on your behalf, that He lived a perfect life in your place, and love Him because of it. And follow Him in faith and obedience. You're not going to nail this 10 for 10, but indeed you can follow Christ. Indeed, there is hope for you because Jesus Christ died for the lawless hypocrite. I was once one. Christ died for the lawless hypocrite. Turn to Him and trust in Him. So I hope this sermon has been a gut check for us this evening. Right? It was for me. It hurt real bad writing it. But I also hope, and I know I've been up here for a long time, we're cycling, we're circling the end. I hope that this sermon encourages you if you're a believer. 
Seriously. I would ask you this. Is your life a lawless life? Is it lawless as we defined it out of verse 4? No repentance, total opposition to God, you care nothing about Him. You could be lumped in the same group as someone who hates God or a false prophet. Are you a lawless person? Is your life a lawless life, Christian? For a lot of you in here, I can say no. Your life is not lawless. Right? Remember, John isn't saying that we're going to be sinless. So some questions. Do you trust the Lord Jesus to save you? Do you strive to be righteous like Christ? Do you attempt obedience on a daily basis? Do you repent when you sin? If the answer is yes to those, then you are not a lawless unbeliever. And this text should give you some assurance of your salvation. Because you're not one of the lawless ones. The lawless are the one who are, whose John is calling out, not the imperfect ones. It's the lawless, not the imperfect that John's putting on trial here. Because God is gracious and kind towards His people. And He will keep us. Even when we are faithless, He is faithful, is what Paul writes to Timothy. For He cannot deny Himself, and He has chosen to save us. He will not allow us to be lawless. So I want you to be encouraged as you fight your sin, and as you strive for holiness. Because fighting your sin and striving for holiness is the sign that you are not lawless. Be encouraged by that. And never forget that we worship a patient, forgiving God who loves His children even when they fall. I'll leave you guys with this. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, God. You're a holy, righteous God who only does good, and we thank you for that. We thank you for giving us your word that we might not stumble around in darkness, that you might show us how we can know if we're saved, that you might point us to Christ more, that you point our sin out to us. How we thank you for all of your graces given to us in your word. We thank you for the fact that we're not saved by our obedience, God, but that our obedience can give us a measure of assurance. God, make us into obedient people. God, help us to leave no provision for the flesh that we might run our sins down and stab them. And help us to kill our sin. Help us to be like Christ. God, we thank you for the grace that you've given us to do so by your work of your Holy Spirit. Above all things, thank you so much for Christ crucified in place of sinners that we might know you. In Christ's name, amen.